a lot of younger people switching between drinking a lot of beers, having a few cocktails and things like that. You know, it like would, seltzers, can't forget those, man. Hard seltzers. Just, and seltzers. And seltzers. I was, I, I was just going to say it wouldn't be an episode of Consumer Choice Radio without Yael mention, mentioning seltzers. <laughs> he is a big fan. Welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting here on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM, every single Saturday at 10 a.m. Eastern. Some of you might be listening along on the podcast version. Thank you for that. You can always find our podcast in the Apple iTunes Store on Overcast or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, coming to you from Vienna, Austria, right smack in the middle of the European Union. And I'm joined, as always, by my trusty colleague, David Clement, who's uh, shivering his timbers off in Toronto, Ontario. David, sir, how goes it, good man? Uh, it's going. It's going. Excited for this week's show. Uh, we have a great guest. Great guest. And uh, there's quite a bit to talk about this week. So happy to be getting back into the, uh, the policy discussions that we're so used to, as opposed to being consumed by... Um, consumed by the presidential race so uh yeah yeah let's uh let's get moving let's do it all right let's uh we're gonna go ahead and queue up our first clip oh we got an amazon delivery coming in uh <laughs> yeah. we'll queue up our first clip uh we've got guy bentley who's uh he's a director of consumer freedom research at the reason foundation uh we can go ahead and get him here on the line Great interview, guys. We kind of go over everything related to the election. We go over some of the very important consumer topics uh, that were present on the election day, but also kind of what happens in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, so actually, awesome, amazing conversation. Guy is totally a friend of the show, uh, someone that everyone here should follow. Uh, definitely someone who's very interesting and uh, smart and sharp. Uh, he's a former reporter himself, so that would be great. Uh, we'll go ahead and... Uh, Line that up. Can you can you get Jamie to to hit that? Yeah, Jamie, can you play the clip? And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. We're here with Guy Bentley, who's a great friend of the show. Guy Bentley is director of consumer freedom research at the Reason Foundation. You might have read some of his articles that he's covered, uh, everything from taxation to regulation. He talks about nicotine. He talks about tobacco, alcohol, food, gambling, the whole gamut. Guy, thanks so much for being on Consumer Choice Radio. Thanks so much for having me. So, yeah, I wanted to start out really quick on a sort of a political note. Uh, you know, you are a, a emigre to the United States and you got to see another election. So what was that like uh, just kind of being uh, there in the Capitol or around the, the election, you know, hearing the results like the rest of us? What has that kind of been like for you? Uh, it was definitely tense. Uh, I remember in the week running up to the election, you had... Um, all shops and restaurants, everyone being boarded up, anticipating civil unrest, if there was a Trump victory and just a, a real air of tension. And I remember watching the results as they were coming in. And I think everyone was confused. The polls had got it wrong in so many different directions by such magnitude. Um, but uh, in, in the end, despite the 
sort of furore we've been having afterwards with, you know, contested uh, ballots and lawsuits and all the rest of it. Um, thankfully, in most places, it's been a bit of an anticlimax. We didn't have mass rioting and civil unrest that some people were predicting. So that was uh, an optimistic note. And I think uh, a lot of people could draw um, what they wanted out of this election. It was not really a clear mandate for one party or, or the other. We're left again with divided government at the federal level and not many things changing at the state level. I mean, in fact, some improvements on the Republican side um, on the state level in terms of houses and state houses and governorships. So a really unclear result from what's very much a divided electorate and a sort of realignment in politics um, with the two parties now assembling very different coalitions to the ones they had just 10 years ago. Let's talk about some of those uh, state uh, victories, particularly the ballot initiatives. You have on Reason.org a couple of articles where you're analyzing several of the propositions related to vaping, e-cigarettes, gaming, uh, sports betting. Walk us through a couple of these and which ones you think are uh, the most interesting, uh, I guess, for consumer freedom. Yeah. Well, for consumers, it was a, it was a mixed bag in terms of uh, ballot initiatives. On the bad side, we had um, initiatives in Colorado and Oregon um, that were planned to increase both the cost of cigarettes and the cost of e-cigarette products, um, which is um, a particular problem because e-cigarettes, as we now know, are dramatically safer alternatives to combustible cigarettes and are a great way for people who can't or don't want to otherwise quit smoking to switch away to something less harmful. And unfortunately, both uh, Colorado and Oregon um, voted to dramatically increase taxes on these products in, um, in Colorado. It's, uh, the tax is going to be around 56% of the wholesale value of e-cigarette products, and that's going to rise to 62% in, tw in uh, 2027. And uh, in Oregon, similarly, there's going to be a 65% wholesale e-cigarette tax. So really a sort of, you know, bad move for public health policy. And the price of cigarettes dramatically increasing as well, which, you know, in a time where we're suffering, you know, severe economic downturns because of the pandemic, uh, a lot of retailers and businesses will suffer from this. Um, and we will see, as we've seen with dramatic tax increases in other states like California and New York, a massive increase in the illicit cigarette trade and cigarette smuggling. So that was unfortunately um, uh, a bad loss for consumer freedom there. However, there were some good notes. We've had, you know, throughout 2019, we had a raft of states legalizing sports betting, which previously states had been forbidden to do which was absolutely crazy. It was thanks to a, 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 a ridiculous law passed in 1992 called uh, the Professional Amateur Sports Protection Act, which banned states from legalizing sports betting. That was struck down by the Supreme Court in 2018. And states have immediately been jumping on this because the illegal sports betting market in the US is estimated to be around $150 billion. And a majority of Americans engage in some kind of sports betting. So states are quite rightly jumping on this bandwagon and legalizing sports betting. And the voters of Maryland voted overwhelmingly to legalize sports betting. And the details of that will be left up to the legislature. So we had some good news there. And on the uh, drugs front, we had interesting initiatives 
in Oregon, you know, they did something bad with having a war on drugs on nicotine and tobacco, but they did decriminalize the possession and use of small amounts of what are, um, called, you know, I think wrongly called hard drugs, such as uh, heroin and cocaine and so on, which sounds very worrying to lots of people having these drugs decriminalized. But in fact, Portugal, many years ago, we do have an example in the early 2000s where Portugal decriminalized these hard drugs. And in fact, what we saw was lower rates of incarceration, lower rates of drug addiction, more focus on treating this as a medical problem rather than a criminal problem. So that was actually fantastic news. And also we had several states, again, uh, leading, uh, you know, leading the parade with legalization of marijuana, including Mississippi, which uh, legalized, but only for now for medical use. But we also saw Montana, New Jersey, Arizona. So I think we are really in the sort of final death throes of the war on marijuana. So a mixed one, bag. One note real quick on uh, one note real quick on Mississippi. I have one of my former editors. She lives in, in Mississippi, a super conservative place, and uh, she had never expected that this would ever pass or ever get to any level. And the fact that we can have medical cannabis in a place like Mississippi just shows that the rest of the dominoes are going to fall pretty soon, right? Yeah. No, yes. I, think, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, it's just a minute. Just a minute. So, I mean, it's funny to talk about Oregon because it's, like you said, a mixed bag, both pros and cons. Uh, but anecdotally, one of my favorite tweets that was tweeted after the result, I was, I think, actually probably from last week, someone was like, uh, if I have 11 people over for Thanksgiving, the cops go up, but we're, if we're all smoking crack, it's okay. <laughs> um, on, on sports betting, though, because that's an interesting one, and Yael and I have talked about this maybe a little bit. It's, it's not something that um, we've really kind of dug into. Are we talking um, all betting? Are we talking in-game betting? Um, or it, what, what were some of the rules that were struck down of, uh, at the state level? Um, and I ask this because I know in the Canadian context, you can bet on games through the like provincial uh, authority, but you have to parlay them together. You can't do single game betting. You can't do all of the fun in game betting that people love to do these days. Um, so what was the status of where things stood? And do we have any insight as to, how, how liberal or how open these betting markets are going to be? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And previously under PASPA, it was all, uh, it was rather confusing because all sports betting was uh, illegal or states rather prevented from legalizing all sports betting. Of course you had Nevada though was the exception and there were some eccentric exceptions for some states, I believe Montana and a couple of others with grandfathered in, games that nobody played on, you know, I think there was some things with horse racing and a few other very old things. But there was also this fascinating gray market that developed with uh, fantasy, um, fantasy football, you know, DraftKings and all the rest of it, which was in a gray market because that is not considered real sports or sports betting, because of course, it's not real teams. So, but, uh, however, uh, states and some attorneys general did think about trying to reinterpret law to include these things, but it never really happened. So, but thankfully that's all, that's all over now. Everything is legal. In terms of the structure and how states doing in terms of 
what you can do or so on. I'm not aware of any restrictions that have been in place on in-game betting and so on. I'd have to double check that, but I believe it is most states are fairly, a fairly liberal regime um, in, in most states. And thankfully, you know, a lot of states have understood that, yes, this can be something of a revenue-raising measure, right? You're legalizing this huge illegal market that many people play. You will raise some money from it. But most states have actually been fairly restrained in how they're taxing um, this new activity. Nevada's tax is around 6.5%. So if you think of that as a baseline for a successful you know, gambling market. It's most reasonable. States, exactly. Most states yeah. are staying in around the single digits or low double digits. Anything above that, you're, you're really destroying the profitability of gaming operators. Um, mm -hmm. There have been interesting cronyism issues with some of the leagues demanding what are called integrity fees to be put in with legalizing <laughs> sports betting, essentially a 1% tax on the handle. So the total amount bet because they believe that, well, they're providing these games, which people are deriving value off. They should get some of that back. And also they should pay for keeping the games clean. Now, as, as you guys know, in Europe with very liberal betting markets, you do not have this and there is very little corruption in games. There's great co cooperation between law enforcement and gaming operators and policing. Yeah. Thankfully, that most states have rejected that, thankfully, although two do have them. Wow. Everybody needs their cut, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everybody wants their piece of the pie. I do have to say the in-game in betting side is so much fun from a spectator's point of view. Um, a, a good friend of mine, where we were at a Blue Jays game in Toronto. Um, baseball at the best of times isn't necessarily the most riveting sport. Um, but when you can live bet that the guy at bat is going to hit a double um, and wager any amount from a penny up, it just completely changes the consumer experience at the game. And it was like in that moment where I was like, Oh wow, this is this is a lot of fun, and and it's not like you have like three four dollar bet minimums, and you're wasting a lot of money. You can literally throw a penny down um, on things that have insane odds, and it just creates a whole another um, a whole another perspective to the game, which was super fun. So it's it's exciting to hear that um, that American states are kind of driving in that direction um, on the on the decriminalization front in Oregon, just to go back to that quickly, at least from my point of view, it's starting to seem that people are coming around, even conservatives to a certain extent. And I wanted to ask you if you feel the same way, if you're, has there been a real negative pushback to this? Um, or are people kind of starting to see, um, to see that this is generally the way to go? Yeah. Um, that's a really interesting question. Just getting back to the sports betting point on in-game betting. Um, that is one of the often overlooked great benefits of legalizing sports betting is um, enthusiasm for games. It, you know, if you make games that are perhaps marginally interesting, whether it's the sport or the actual game that is happening, you increase a lot, a lot of consumer enthusiasm for games. You have more people watching, there's more interest. So that's another great benefit for, for the industry as well. I totally agree with that. In terms of Oregon specifically in decriminalization of, um, of, of possession and use of small amounts of heroin and cocaine and so on. I, I think many conservatives have come round to 
ideas of marijuana decriminalization and legalization, uh, I, I, I still think that uh, decriminalization of those categories of drugs is probably still a step too far uh, for, for many conservatives. That's, that's probably a line they would not want to cross. And there are some, some quite you know, obvious incentives as to why that might be the case. Uh, unlike marijuana, the use rates for those kind of drugs are minuscule. I mean, really, it's it really rarely for any of those drugs, whether it's cocaine or, or heroin, um, uh, freq frequent use of those drugs rarely um, is above 1% of the population for, um, uh, for re recreational use. Um, same with, you know, LSD and, and these other kinds. So there isn't the kind of mass constituency that there is for marijuana um, legalization. And also these, these drugs, people still don't fully understand them. Um, they don't uh, fully understand that, you know, most people who use these drugs are not addicts, for instance. Um, there's still a lot of misperception around many, many of these drugs. Um, but there is one drug that could perhaps be gaining more ground, and that's versus magic mushrooms, uh, because the FDA has granted psilocybin, which is the active uh, chemical within magic mushrooms that you know essentially, essentially gets you high um, or g gives you that experience, that in certain contexts, FDA um, has uh, given that special status as a potential therapeutic drug. So that can accelerate the process of research into how that kind of drug can be used. And in Washington, D.C., um, there was Initiative 88, which was a, you know, a decriminalization, but not a decriminalization. I, don't know if I could go into that if you want, but it's a, it's, it's a bit eccentric to the, to the district, which was approved overwhelmingly by, by voters. And that's happened in several other cities across the country as well. And especially because, you know, ma magic mushrooms, these are not, you don't see massive rates of addiction to it there's not a lot of people getting in their cars after after using that and so on like alcohol and sometimes marijuana so i would say there's an entry point for that kind of liberalization because it also has a medicinal benefit but when you're talking about cocaine and heroin um i think that's probably still a step too far that's true. There we go. That's uh, Guy Bentley. We're here on Consumer Choice Radio. He is Director of Consumer Freedom at the Reason Foundation. You can also follow him on Twitter at GBentley, number one. Uh, Guy, you've been a newspaper reporter, uh, a writer. You know, I've, I enjoyed many of your articles many years ago when you were uh, writing off in foreign capitals and also in the States. Uh, one thing that I wanted to bring up is the pandemic. And uh, I know many people are focusing a lot more on the political horse races and things that are happening. Uh, but sitting where I am, this is still a huge deal. And uh, I think lockdowns are, are probably going to be uh, part of our, our narrative for a while. So how is um, looking at your research and the things that you look at, how is the pandemic kind of affecting that? Or what are some interesting questions that you're kind of asking now that we're seeing, a, I guess, a longer term impact of the COVID age? Yes. Well, this is now the sort of multi-trillions of dollars question uh, that has been, you know, bankrupting, you, you know, us at a rapid pace. In terms of many of the areas I look at, um, there are, you know, crises always bring about reforms and, and new thinking. It's unfortunate that sometimes you need crises for lawmakers and legislators to reconsider failed policies that just sort of stay in place as a sort of stasis. 
Um, for instance, if we look at issues like um, alcohol regulation and regulation of the service, the service economy and restaurants and bars and diners and so on, uh, we've seen, you know, many states in the US and other countries abroad react by liberalizing laws around alcohol sales, for instance, to go cocktails or beers and so on, um, reforming things like open container laws so you can, you know, drink outside and so on, and socially distance and all the rest of that. These are all positive reforms that should have happened anyway, but have been accelerated by, um, uh, by the crisis. There is, however, one, I think, very harmful narrative that is going around, uh, particularly, uh, I see this in the, in the United Kingdom, and I do see some murmur of this in the US, which is that we all know obesity as a comorbidity for COVID-19. So, so many people in public health and some legislators say that, well, we need to clamp down on population-wide obesity. So we should introduce new kinds of taxes on, the certain, on foods people are eating or drinks they're consuming and so on. And I think that's entire, entirely the wrong approach. You know, it, you know, you know, obesity is a risk factor for many other diseases anyway. Consumer, you know, it is not hard in this society to know that obesity is bad for your health. Uh, this is not exactly a state secret. So introducing more taxes and re regulations on food in the service industry, one, uh, these are very ineffective at reducing obesity rates anyway. And it's exactly the wrong response where you have the hospitality industry on its knees, many restaurants and bars and so on going out of business. And the last thing the you know, survivors of this onslaught need are new costs deterring consumers from uh, buying and enjoying the products, uh, the products that they like. So I see that as quite a negative um, trend that's coming out of, uh, of the pandemic at, uh, at the moment. And also- Surprise coming from the UK. What yeah. a surprise that this would exactly. pop out there. Terribly surprising at all. And of course, the sad thing is many states are gonna have massive budget uh, holes and we, uh, you know that so they're going to need to find either new revenue or large spending caps and unfortunately tax rises and increases will be on the way and one of the go-to things are popular products that people consume uh, so that's so that could be a, a, tr a trend to watch out for but again it's very short-termist you don't want to you know go for a quick money grab and then uh, healthily destroy you know, the hospitality sector or small businesses selling these products that are the backbone of your local economies. And what's interesting always about these tax uh, policies is that they never, it, we've been talking about this stuff for a long time. I don't think I've ever seen any politician come at it from the other way and say, hey, obesity is a problem. So we're going to do a $200 tax credit over the course of a year for fitness programs, gym memberships, sports leagues, like things that will induce you to burn calories and to be active. Um, and I've always looked at that as like, well, why? Like, why, why is the reaction always to restrict when you could enable folks? And I was wondering if you've seen any examples on the other side of that equation or if you see any value in, in suggestions like that? Yeah, um, there have been proposals like that put forward by um, uh, people in the field of public health in order to try and incentivize, for instance, buying healthier groceries or 
uh, or exactly as you say, giving you know gym memberships and so on. The, and these things have been tried at uh, the micro level. Uh, the, the, the problem is they, they kind of like the stick approach, the carrot approach just doesn't seem to yield many effects. There have been small scale programs, I believe in the UK and uh, the Netherlands, with, uh, focused on children, but these are quite you know, intensive programs. And of course, focusing on children, you know, it's not adults who are totally making their own decisions and you know, live by themselves, have their, have their own habits, so on. Ch with children, you sort of have a captive audience and you can influence the school environment. And I don't see a lot wrong with that at all. You know, kids are kids. And, you know, it's up to adults to, you know, try and raise the kids. And when they're adults, they can choose for themselves. That's totally fine. When it comes to adults, I don't see a great deal of value in, for instance, you know, I don't know, subsidizing people to go to Whole Foods instead of, you know, in, in, instead of something else. Because it doesn't yield the, the effects you would want and uh, could be quite costly. I think the thing is with obesity is, you know, we all, we know how to not be obese it's don't eat so much and exercise this is not rocket science there are many sort of different theories and so on but it's not rocket science the thing is a lot of people just enjoy foods that are unhealthy because they're very tasty and in a free and you know in a free society people are going to make those choices and it's a trade-off uh, that you know the great economist thomas Sowell said there were no solutions only trade-offs and this is one of them Wow, that's the second time I've heard that quote today, and I love it. Uh, <laughs> one thing, guy. I, I, one thing I, I, I think is always missing from this is also private initiative. Uh, you know, there's a reason the Peloton bike was such like a huge uh, popular craze uh, in in many suburbs and places. But you know, we see a lot of these private initiatives that happen, and much like, um, and I've seen you argue this very similarly. Much like vaping and e-cigarettes, the fact that these things are done by private entrepreneurs or by private groups or done really outside of the chambers of government, it's as if it's nothing to celebrate. You know, it's as if everything needs to emanate from, you know, the health bureau or uh, agency or institute. Uh, I know one quick example is uh, for insurance companies, you know, they have kind of their own incentives if you have a physical, but also if you have like stellar health performance, they're actually going to lower your rates. They do that at my dad's work. And uh, they got everybody wearing Fitbits and walking around. And if you can run a mile faster, then your insurance costs will actually go down. So they've like gamified it. But of course, because it's a private institution and it's private actors, it's as if it's not celebrated as much. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a really excellent point. And, you know, a lot of public health officials and governments are behind the times on this. So if you look at things like obesity, for instance, soda is one of the big things people carp on about, you know, we need soda taxes or bans or restrictions. Soda consumption in the US has been declining for years now. I mean, many, many years, soda consumption has been continuously declining. Uh, and now you see all these, you know, kind of things that the market is providing, like, you know, LaCroix flavored waters and all the rest, mm -hmm. low or zero calorie or all the rest. And you're talking about Peloton. And again, you know, there, there is a, there, there's a cultural side to this in which you know back in the sort of very olden days it was a state status symbol to sort of be fat because it showed that you were wealthy and you, you could afford lots of food and indulge and all we're talking you know long time ago now now it's a sort of cultural status symbol to be you know healthy fit and trim and that you can resist the pressures of you know uh fast food and all the rest of that so society adapts and changes and obesity rates in the US, you know 
they've been they were stagnant for a long time they've got gone up um i think only a touch in the in the last few years but i really anticipated the long term that that rate coming down as society shifts and what becomes um societally accepted or society um desirable uh, amongst people changes and as you say you've seen explosions in the number of uh gyms and opportunities to uh to exercise and so on and not just you know the horrendously expensive uh, you know things like oh, what is it that that soul cycle thing or, or you know not these ludicrous hey, don't, don't hate because you don't ride <laughs> <laughs> I, I i do not ride um but you know but at at many price points uh it, it, which makes it easier to entry and explosions of choices in what you can eat and eat healthier and cookbooks and diets and all the rest there is no lack of, inf of information or resources if people want to take it yeah, and food and food delivered to your home ready for you to cook. That's been something that's like, it, it can be calorie conscious. It cannot be calorie conscious. That's ultimately up to you. But there are all sorts of services. I know throughout the early part of the pandemic, we were just having um, good food delivered. And it's a cool cooking experience. And you're like, oh, okay, well, that, that full meal only had 650 calories. That's actually pretty good. David, are you, are you talking about things like blue apron or uh hello fresh and so okay not a sponsor but we'd love to have you guys as a sponsor yeah, <laughs> That's great yeah. no free ads no free ads um but yeah they are good uh they are they're great services in that sense i mean obviously kind of heightened by the pandemic because it was the ultimate convenience to just mm. stay at home and have it delivered with <laughs> delivered essentially in a cardboard cooler to your door um but yeah lots of interesting private uh, initiatives that are kind of driving this. I even see it in the alcohol market, like Michelob Ultra. If you didn't know what Michelob Ultra was prior to seeing advertisements for it, you think they were advertising a CrossFit gym uh, <laughs> because their whole brand is built around people who are fit, who want to have a beer, but they don't want to feel guilty about it. And so I do think that like this trend overall will whether it's low calorie or zero calorie sodas or reduced calorie beers or other things that are otherwise kind of in air quotes unhealthy uh, i do think that this trend is is going to continue to see we're, we're going to continue to we're eventually see obesity rates decline as mm -hmm. we generally become more conscious of it so that's all positive the, the key is can we get there before legislators start proposing all sorts of other crazy policies no, that's uh, great yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, you talk about the alcohol market. If you look at the alcohol market, you see sales of traditional beer, you know, domestic domestic beer, heavy calorie beer, um, reduced quite substantially over the last few years with a lot of people switching to liquor. You know, there's this sort of great, you know, there really hasn't been a better time to be a drinker in America than since Prohibition. Uh, prices are reasonable, competition's intense. Um, you know, you've had the craft beer revolution. You also have now this sort of explosion in the number of spirits and cocktail culture. You see a lot of younger people switching between drinking a lot of beers, having a few cocktails and things like that. You know, seltzers can't forget those, man. Hard seltzers. Just, and seltzers. And seltzers. I was, I, I was just going to say it wouldn't be an episode of Consumer Choice Radio without Yael mention, mentioning seltzers. <laughs> he is a big fan well, we don't have them. We don't have them in Europe at all. And there was one that was introduced. The UK probably has one or two. 
and I've seen some of them introduced a little bit by some grocery store chains here, but they just don't taste the same, man. Shame. Shame. Shade. Yeah. So uh, Guy Bentley, awesome guy. Uh, obviously, amazing research over there at reason.org. Uh, guy, just to kind of close it out, you know, what are some of the things that you've got your eye on, uh, that you've, <laughs> you've got your thumb on the scale, pointing towards obese, that you've got your thumb on your scale that, uh, you know, you're looking at and uh, things that maybe listeners can uh, follow? Yeah, I think one thing we've, we're really looking at is uh, a big push to ban flavored tobacco products. We've seen Massachusetts uh, has, was the first state in the country to ban all flavored tobacco products. So that's your flavored cigars, menthol cigarettes, e-cigarette flavors, and all the rest of it. And uh, to the shock of absolutely no one, there has been an absolute surge in trafficking of these products from New Hampshire and Rhode Island. I mean, tens and tens of millions of dollars just in the first few months of when that prohibition was introduced, I believe in uh, um, June or July. So really not an example for other states to follow. Yet California has done so uh, and banned these products, but there is a ballot initiative next year that signatures are being gathered for on whether to repeal that. There will be a big push for that in a lot of states uh, possibly at the federal level as well. And I think an important thing to point out about this is the inclusion of menthol cigarettes. You see in the US, most African-Americans who smoke, smoke menthols, around 85%. Uh, and so prohibiting menthol cigarettes while keeping other cigarettes on the market, you can see the obvious problem. This is, there claims made that they are more addictive or they're somehow worse for you. This has been studied very extensively. Menthol cigarettes are just as dangerous as regular cigarettes. They're not safer, but they're also not worse for you than regular cigarettes. So why target a tobacco product mostly used by black Americans where tobacco products used mostly by white Americans remain legal? And I think that's obviously discriminatory and will have a terrible impact in terms of criminal justice and over-policing. And that's why the American Civil Liberties Union has also been very much against this. So that's something you know, we focused on in our research and showing that, in fact, um, black youth are far less likely than white youth to smoke cigarettes. So the idea that, oh, this is going to, you know, this is to protect um, African-American children is, tot is totally fallacious. So we see that as a discriminatory ban that we'll be, we'll be fighting very hard against. And it's a real head scratcher given the collective conversation the country is having about racial disparities already. It's like, okay, we're having this very progressive, forward thinking conversation about the reality that people experience life differently and racism exists and there are institutional factors at that. And, and people are generally coming around in terms of having that conversation and trying to make some change while at the same time, kind of reversing the car and saying, no, no, no. Yeah, we're going to make some progress, but we're going to erase some of that by creating what are, as you've described, clearly discriminatory laws. So um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Hopefully, um, hopefully there, are, there is enough push to uh, urge legislators to maybe rethink some of these things. Um, and yeah, Guy, thank you very much for, for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. And we'll have to have you back. Uh, definitely a friend of the show. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate it.
And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio on the Big Talker FM. Uh, great interview with Guy Bentley, a friend of the show. Um, yeah, like I said in, in the lead up, it's good to, to talk policy again. There are some positives that have come out from uh, from the election. So yeah, it's um, yeah, good, good, great interview. We'll have him back for sure. Yeah, good wit. Uh, definitely someone to follow. He does a bit more in-depth research uh, than we do on the day-to-day, but uh, someone cool. So, David, we've got a couple things in the news going on. It's a, it's a nice, delicious week. Uh, we are further out from the election, so there are some other topics uh, that have kind of fallen into our lap. And one of them that I wanted to discuss was the recent— <laughs> I mean, it feels like this happens every week, but we have the tech CEOs uh, who are on Capitol Hill, or at least their videos were, and they were there to discuss everything about social media, censorship, and big tech. Uh, also, do you uh, did you catch any of this, by the way? I, I, I didn't catch as much as I usually do, but someone has to tell gov- the gov- government officials that, like, these guys have things to do. They can't be coming oh, yeah. in every other week. To get grilled by people who don't understand how Facebook and Twitter work. It's just like, this is exhausting. It's I mean, I guess they're the new boogeyman that, that they can op- that legislators can opine about and try and get their like fifteen minutes in the sun before this lame duck duck session ends. But yeah, it's just getting exhausting at this point. Yeah, I mean the, the amount of stuff that they actually need to be doing back in their offices, like you say, it's probably like a huge long list. And then they have to try to, you know, quell the rebellion from the right and quell the calls for, you know, take breaking up the monopolies on the left. It's it's very much insane. And this is just showing once again why any of these political figures, uh, in this case, it was the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, why none of these people should have really any say in how uh, these tech companies are run at all. But hey, that, that's how it goes. So I wanted to play one clip to get your take, David. This is from Senator Blumenthal of Stolen Valor fame. Uh, I believe he's in Connecticut or Massachusetts. Uh, one of these. Uh, so he's a senator, and he's talking to Mark Zuckerberg, and uh, he's got a point about people he'd like to ban and what he'd like to see banned on the platform. Uh, let me ask about Facebook community standards, which ban language that, quote, incites or facilitates serious violence. As you know, on November 5th, Steve Bannon, in a Facebook Live video, called for beheadings of Dr. Fauci and FBI Director Ray for not acting more favorably toward President Trump. Twitter banned Bannon for these remarks. Uh, you removed the video. Uh, Mr. Zuckerberg, but on Thursday, he reportedly told Facebook employees that Bannon had not violated enough policies that he should be banned from Facebook. My question to you is, how many times has Steve Bannon allowed the call for the murder of government officials before Facebook suspends his account? Senator, as you say, the content in question did violate our policies, and we took it down. Having a content violation does not automatically mean your content, your, your, your account gets taken down. And the number of strikes varies depending on the amount, the, the type of offense. So if people are posting terrorist content or child exploitation content, then the first time uh, that they do it, then we will, we will take down their account. 
Um, for other things, it's it's multiple. Um, I'd be happy to follow up afterwards. We we try not to um, will, will disclose you these down his account. Sorry, I didn't hear that. Will you commit to taking down that account, Steve Bannon's account? Senator, no, it's that that's not what our policies would suggest that we should do um, in, in this case. Wow, good guys suck. I like that. But what a bogus, bogus thing from Blumenthal. Come on. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think it's fair to say I despise Steve Bannon. Obviously, the content deserves to get taken down and is, and is objectionable. Um, but that's supposed to kind of be the point of the reviewer censorship mechanisms is to take down harmful content. Uh, sure. If you become a repeat offender... Uh, in terms of explicit examples like that, then Facebook takes it a step further and removes your account. It's the same thing for Twitter. However, I will say at the end of the day, the whole question is silly. I mean, this is a private platform. They should be free or are should be free and should continue to be free to monitor their content however they see fit, even if that means that they look like hypocrites, or even if it means that they are hypocrites. Um, there are all sorts of examples of, I mean, there are disparities of in terms of like what will remain on Twitter and what gets booted off Twitter. Um, but at the end of the day, they're not the public. That is not a public space. It is not something owned by the people. It's something owned by a company, and it's their rules. It's their platform. Yeah, and, and why should the public, when most people are facing a situation where they're not sure if they can gather with their families for Thanksgiving. They're not sure if they're still going to have a job by the end of the year. Like, Why should we tolerate all these guys days after the election trying to put up some hearing to discuss, you know, whatever popular figures have whatever social media account? I mean, this is outrageous. And if this is what Congress is doing, uh, it's it's pretty shameful. You know, there, there were a couple of good senators who at least uh, were there not necessarily to push back against the social media networks but just say, hey, look, we just got to get these rules right so we don't need to bring you guys here anymore. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there's there's plenty of that that's happening. Uh, there's a lot of stories that will be coming out. Um, there's one that I actually was able to get published this week on targeted advertising having to do with these social media networks. Uh, just got the email back, so we'll be published. And uh, th that is more of a conversation about all these social media giants and targeted advertising is very much their bread and butter. It's uh, something that we, David, have used as Consumer Choice Center, you know, trying to reach out people and get people to click on not just this radio show and podcast, but also all of our written materials and research. And there are proposals to totally ban targeted advertising, which is pretty dangerous, I think, and will definitely cut off uh, one of the great innovative technologies that we have. And in the European Parliament, uh, they actually did vote last month to outlaw targeted advertising. It's not yet binding until the European Commission passes it, uh, but it's um, you know just an, an, another example of how uh, some great innovation that has been put together is now in the crosshairs of many political and activist groups. And this is the thing that drives me wild, is should... okay. For people who golf, should they get advertisements for things that are related to golf? Yes or no? 
Everyone answers yes. Should people who are new parents get advertisements for things like strollers or sales on diapers or anything else that falls under something that a new parent would need? Of course. Should I get... For people who maybe don't know, I don't have kids. Um, So would it be a waste for an advertiser to essentially be forced to spend their money in a way that means that I get the baby advertisements. That's just inefficient and silly. Sure. And it's a waste of money. And it's irritating, to be honest, from a consumer side. Like, there are all sorts of examples where, I mean, the, the targeted ads are not perfect. Um, but well, yeah. and again, it's not to say that, yeah, that they are perfect or they're even good. And the thing is, is the great technology that exists that allows targeted advertising so that we as Consumer Choice Center, for example, can know that we're targeting people who work in government offices in North Carolina or in Ottawa or whatever. Uh, we can also use very similar technology to block all ads, you know, using the Brave browser using VPNs, using things like a Raspberry Pi. I mean, there's all this kind of stuff that exists that's very easy to cut this stuff out that, you know, you don't need to have huge regulation or bans or restrictions. And everyone assumes they're just harming the tech companies, but really you're just harming the small businesses like the small, you know, local corner store golf shop who wants to sell, you know, whatever shirts or bags or clubs. And now he's not able to target the people in the area. I mean, that's that's harmful. This technology is there because it gives us all these advantages. And many of these political figures and activist groups, uh, they want to cut all this down. And believe me, the pendulum will swing back on you. Of course. I've seen many left-wing groups that have been uh, very much in favor of getting, getting, you know, doing away with targeted ads. Well, say goodbye to your Greenpeace, you know, targeted climate justice ads or something. Like, you think you're going to get more people signed up? No way. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're going to end up spending money on advertisements to reach people who don't want to see it. I mean, if we use the golf example, I think that's the perfect one. So all sorts of golf of course courses. you think that. No well, it is the perfect. I mean, it, but it also could go for gyms, right? Now, obviously, gyms are a little complicated given the circumstances. But assume that we're not in the middle of a pandemic and a gym is going to offer a sale and they want to target people within a 20 20 mile radius of their location that's an efficient way and then you can tailor it to let's say they want to focus on people between the ages of 25 and 45 Um, that's a very good way of efficiently spending advertising money which small businesses admittedly don't have much of Um, the alternative is if they're going to spend any money advertising at all they're going to do some wide net and you're going to get people in Charleston, South Carolina, getting advertisements for a gym in Charlotte or, or some other scenario where it's just a complete waste of money. And it doesn't serve any purpose on both sides of the equation, both the business side and the consumer side. And so I don't see how anybody wins in this scenario other than just trying to stick it to tech companies, which, I mean, that seems to be the only real outcome of this policy suggestion is that they're just while making life more irritating for everyone they're attempting to stick it to the tech companies which is just yeah wild and and this is it just happens to be a bit more sophisticated than 
the advertisements on CNN or Fox News that target, you know, particular people who might be watching at that hour. I mean, anyone who's ever watched Fox News for five seconds, you can see the ads, you know, it's all pharmaceutical companies and, you know, older people with back problems and things like this. Yeah, you know, they, they're trying to figure out what the demo is, you know, who they're reaching out, but it's often hit or miss. At least with technology, you're able to actually reach people and figure out how you can find people who might be interested in music, for instance, and you want to pitch your blog or your band or, or whatever it might be. So we're going to see more of this um, probably in, in many different areas. I know that California and New York have tried to pass their own versions of privacy laws that generally, they don't necessarily uh, put targeted ads in there, but they're really trying to stop that. And again, this is just not something that we need the government to do. If any of you want to, to stop ads online and have stop the targeting, I can help you out. I got VPNs. I can help you out with all kinds of browsers and things to, to stop everything. And those things exist. And, you know, for the moment, I think uh, having a, a governmental rule is only going to hurt the people advertising and everything else. Uh, it's bad. I don't yeah. know, David. Uh, I mean, what's uh, what's what's got you worked up actually this week? I, I was just gonna say, if we want to focus, on, if you want to focus on fraud, yes, let's do that. If you want to focus on scams, let's do that. Let's make some pretty clear, strict rules on those things. That's great. Like that's that's exact. That's the type of consumer protection we need. But beyond that, it just seems increasingly paternalistic. Uh, yeah. In terms of what's grinding my gears these days. Uh, we talked about this a little more. Um, we've talked about this a couple times actually over the over the last few shows, but it is re-emerging. Um, so one is uh, the continuation of plastic bans. So the government continuing to chart down the course of banning all sorts of plastic products. Um, but on a positive note, the Albertan government has actually repealed their ban on paid plasma um so super niche issue um anyone who's donated <laughs> yes uh, way to go alberta yeah way to go alberta um and so the backstory on this is that in alberta it was illegal to compensate people for their blood plasma donations in most canadian provinces that's the case there are a few exceptions um but what happens is the the but this is legal in the U.S., correct? Yes, yeah. So it's legal in the U.S., and because it's legal in the U.S., the U.S. largely provides most of the world's plasma and plasma products. So anywhere that has banned paying people for plasma is relying on plasma therapies created by people who were paid in the United States. So it's just a, it's just a big soup of hypocrisy that legislators in Alberta were eating <laughs> uh, in terms of the original ban. And so it's nice to see that that if people are interested in donating, they can be compensated. It means that they won't necessarily rely on entirely U.S. plasma therapies moving forward. So that's, that's a big positive. That's cool, David. Yeah, and, and uh, I did see you a little bit on media talking about this. Had some radio hits. Uh, you were on TV talking about it. So uh, quite the media star up there uh, in, the, in the Great White North this week. Yeah, it's, it's been a good one. It's been a good week. Radio, uh, television, had a good conversation with uh, Tony Clement, who is a former cabinet minister in Canada, who now has his own TV show, um, where I was alongside one of Bill Morneau's former advisors. Um, for those who don't know, Bill Morneau was the finance minister. So good conversations there about 
whether consumers are uh, taking priority in the COVID response or if they're being left behind. Let's uh, let's actually stay on that, uh, not that topic, but that region. Let's uh, let's think a little bit about Canada here. Give me a break. They can't have news. Nothing happens in Canada. Um, so one, <laughs> one clip that's been making the rounds, and uh, you know you're going to start seeing this a little bit. I think we talked about it either on this program or another, is the entire idea of the Great Reset uh, I think the conspiracy world has been kind of going crazy on this, but they it's have. actually now reached the mainstream. And uh, this is related to the World Economic Forum, of which David and I are very familiar, having been there twice now, uh, having done our, our big cannabis conclave. And an idea that came out of that is this idea of the Great Reset, of, of some kind of like reshift in the way we think about, I don't know, governmental society or something like this, and the idea of building back better which has been used as a tagline, and this is the only weird part I would state, it's used as a tagline by the Brits, by the Joe Biden people, by Trudeau. Uh, everybody's kind of using it. I don't, we, no one really knows where it's from. It's just kind of strange. But I wanted to play one clip from uh, Pierre Polièvre, uh, who talks a little bit about this. This is in one of, the, one, of the, one of these committee hearings, not sure. But he talks a little bit about the Canadian government the reset, the amount of money that will be spent uh, to try to offset some of this COVID stuff. So let's uh, let's listen to this, and we'll get David's take. This grand reset the prime minister is now talking about. This, I sometimes wonder if the government's not just covering up the wee scandal here with this endless filibuster, but they also don't want any scrutiny of this grand reset the prime minister is now talking about. This idea that he's going to renovate Canadian society to fit uh, his uh, Trudopian ambitions. Um, this is not a time to re-engineer society to his liking or to his socialist ideology. This is a time to get people safely and securely back to work to protect their lives and their livelihoods, not a time for government to take advantage of the crisis in order to massively expand its powers at the expense of Canadians' freedom. That's what we should be talking about here in the Finance Committee. We should just be standing up against government power grabs like this grand reset the Prime Minister is discussing. But I'm beginning to wonder if this filibuster is about more than just covering up the Wee scandal, but also about covering up the, the government's grand schemes for social uh, and economic engineering uh, to cover up the power grab that he uh, has lusted over since the beginning of this crisis. Uh, so, uh, frankly, we've lost patience. We want an answer. We want to get on with the job. Mm. Yeah, um, he Pierre is an absolute pit bull when it comes to these uh, committee hearings and pushing for transparency. Uh, to be honest, this whole great reset thing, um, I'm not, I, I don't really know what to make of it. I think rather than getting bound up in like the, the conspiracy side of it, like this is some some socialist takeover. Um, or, I, or some cabal or plot. Yeah, I mean, that's all nonsense. Um, but I think the real question is, is will the crisis be used as a means to enact policy changes that would otherwise be inappropriate or not tolerated 
And I, I, I use 9-11 as an example when I talk about this because 9-11 was used as the justification to change much of the way in which Americans live their lives. So everything from TSA and airport security to no-fly lists to war to NSA and warrantless surveillance of U.S. citizens and violating their Fourth Amendment. It was all under the guise of keeping Americans safe. And I think in retrospect, it was many of those decisions were great tragedies and, and were huge mistakes. And so I think it is a serious... Can I, can I give you more examples real quick? Uh, sure, yeah, let's uh, add now it. That now, that I'm, now that I'm thinking about it. Uh, so we go back to 2008, 2009. We have the, the Great Recession, they call it. Do you remember this Cars for Clunkers thing? <laughs> is that the where you can scrap your old car? You get you, you scrap your car, even if your car is worth two thousand bucks. And some people were like raking in fifteen to twenty k, <laughs> like with this government program where you you know you got the old uh, <laughs> got your old car that you turned in. It was like hilarious. And then also the big infrastructure thing. Um, and I remember this driving around in the states right after that. It was you know the big uh, Obama, and this is I think something that Joe Biden uh, bragged about during some of the uh, debates is uh, was this big infrastructure thing, and all of a sudden it'd be like America Recovery Act paid for this road, and it's, it was like everywhere, and it's like well, I don't understand that made no sense. We just spent like way more money after this crisis to do all the roads, okay? But yeah, I think your your point is uh, very legit in that. For the conspiracy crowd, they're on on you know how this is, happens and people pick up the same parlance and words. I think it's just like a milieu thing. It's just like building back better. Sounds good. Sounds good. Sounds good. Sounds yeah. Good. Everyone just kind of takes it on, right? Yeah. Uh, it's it's funny because that whole conspiracy crowd, like the people who are like vehemently anti-mask, are in many instances some of the same circles who were like very much pro war on terror and our pro security theater at the airport with the TSA and all of the nonsense that the TSA subjects you to. So it's kind of funny to see a giant double standard there. Yeah, it's it's getting it's it's getting pretty insane. And the only reason I wanted to bring that up is cuz it is kind of just creeping into the mainstream conversation. I think we're going to hear a little bit about this from different political oppositions. Uh, you haven't seen much opposition right now in the United Kingdom. Uh, but it's at least something that's happening there. You might hear it a bit in the States. I think uh, once the Joe Biden uh, presidency begins there in January, I'm actually predicting that's going to be sort of a Republican talking point. Maybe uh, maybe the anti-quote globalist uh, thing will, will, will take root. I don't really know. We talked about that a little bit last week, David. Uh, people want to go back and listen to that episode. We talked about kind of what the future of the GOP will be and, and what opposition to Biden will mean. Uh, it's definitely going to be a rodeo. I mean, yeah. I mean, the future of the GOP, at least in the short term, could just be hold on for dear life while the Democrats cannibalize each other. Um, ah, that's true. Just yeah. grab your popcorn. Yeah, it, it might just be do nothing and just basically sit and watch them eat each other up because, I mean, uh, it, it looks increasingly likely that Joe Biden is going to snub um, both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren uh, in terms of cabinet positions, which, if that is the case, I think is something that we should all celebrate because 
the policy suggestions of those two people are, are particularly disastrous and problematic. Um, and I think that Joe Biden has the cover to do it because if either of those two leave the Senate, uh, ultimately it will be a Republican governor in Vermont or Massachusetts who selects oh, their who replacement. Selects yeah. And so if the balance of power... I don't think that the runoffs in Georgia are going to be close. I think the Republicans are going to take both because Trump's not on that ticket. Um, so you won't have the anti-Trump. In fact, you'll have a lot of Republicans vote for gridlock. Um, but let's say they didn't and the balance of power were to come down to replacements by the governors in Vermont or in Massachusetts. I mean, Biden would essentially be handing the Senate to the Republicans by picking Sanders or Warren. Um, and so that gives him the cover to not have them on, in cabinet, which, like I said, is just a good that's I think that's good for everybody. Definitely. And more to come on that and great stuff next week. David, pleasure talking. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio here on the Big Talker 106.7 FM. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check with Consumer Choice Radio for much more. And as always, if you are listening online through your favorite podcast app, we appreciate that. Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast uh, and follow us on Twitter at Consumer C Radio. Uh, thanks again. 